This is the Heartache to Hope podcast where we get real about infertility, IVF and pregnancy loss. I'm your host, Anita Thompson, and having been through the journey myself, I wanted to create a safe space where you can hear the stories and experiences from ordinary women who have become extraordinary through their journeys. Even though we didn't choose these circumstances for ourselves, you are part of an incredible, supportive community and you aren't alone. Whatever your hope, my hope is that you will find it here. Here's the second part of my conversation with Rhiannon Malone. If you have heard the first part, you will know that Rhiannon's son Rory tragically died at 39 weeks. Rhiannon is now 30 weeks pregnant though, so a large part of our conversation was around pregnancy after loss and how you navigate all of that. She also talks about her mental health and experience with going back to work after Rory died. So once again, here's Rhiannon. Let's move on to pregnancy after loss now because you you are pregnant. Congratulations. And I can imagine that there are so many mixed emotions that you've gone through during this pregnancy. It's, I imagine, very bittersweet. You're still grieving the loss and wanting to celebrate pregnancy. So there's that kind of tension between those two, whilst also, I imagine, being anxious the entire time Mm -hmm. if there's any movement, if there's any twinge that sort of thing. So talk through the experience and how you've gone and where you're at. So I fell pregnant again six months after Rory died. And so we'd been trying for probably about two or three months. And that in itself is not fun. I think anyone that tries to conceive, it's very different. It's, you know, there's no spontaneity. There's no passion. It's very much I'm fertile for these two days. And you obviously felt ready to do that. Tom and yourself were like, okay, let's try and yeah. see what happens. I, I think there was a sense of as as soon as Rory died, all I wanted was to have another baby, not because I thought it was going to replace him because mm. he is irreplaceable, but because that longing to be a mum was still there and the love that I felt for him even though he had died when he was placed on my chest, I just remember thinking, I have to be able to experience this again. I have to have a child. But obviously, you know, there was a physical recovery and I guess making sure that I was in a good place mentally. And my obstetrician's advice was, you know, he essentially said we could start trying straight away, but he wanted to wait until he he said, ideally, he wanted us to wait till sort of the six month mark, because that's when he felt there would sort of be a bit more time just to build up some more resilience. And so I think we started trying probably around the four-month mark, but I was very stressed that we wouldn't get pregnant. I felt that it had been too good to be true that I got pregnant so easily with Rory and thought, what if we don't get pregnant or what if I have a miscarriage or what if now because, you know, by that stage I was 36, sort of thinking, what if... I have a baby that's got a trisomy or just all the worst case scenarios were the things that were running through my head. And thankfully, much like Rory, we we managed to get pregnant. And I remember taking the pregnancy test and I had a bit of a suspicion that I was pregnant. I just had felt little weird twinges in my body and I knew when my period was due because I was so closely tracking everything. So I took a pregnancy test and much like with Rory, it came up with the double pink line 
straight away. I obviously produce very high <laughs> levels of HCG. And I just remember bursting into tears and being so happy and feeling like this was a gift from Rory. And I actually didn't tell my husband for about, I think it was maybe 24 or 48 hours, because I just wanted to sit with that knowledge and just, I guess it was the first time I'd felt happiness in such a long time. And then told Tom and he was just ecstatic and and we then told friends and family straight away because from our experience we know that there is no safe zone so I really don't subscribe to this whole 12-week wait thing because I was like well I got to 39 and a half weeks and went into labor and my son died so I just I didn't see a point in waiting and telling people and and Tom was very much in agreement with that and we we're conscious of the fact that if anything was to happen to this baby, we would need the support of friends and family because to have another loss would be, you know, on top of the grief we're already processing would have been really tricky. So, yeah, then saw my obstetrician and when I saw him, I think I was maybe only five or six weeks and it was too early to see a heartbeat. And so that sort of waiting period was very stressful. And then the whole of the first trimester, I was just paranoid. I was going to have a miscarriage. So any twinge I felt, I'd go running to the toilet and expect to find blood. Thankfully didn't, got through the first trimester. But I have to say that this pregnancy every day feels like a week. You know, it just, it feels like it's going so slowly and I'm conscious of every single day if people ask me how far along I am, I'm, I don't have to sort of pause and go, oh, I'm about this. So, you know, I, I know I'm 30 weeks in one day and I just, I know where I'm at this whole pregnancy. And so it's felt quite gruelling physically and, and mentally. And I think whilst there was that initial joy when we found out we were pregnant, that was quickly replaced with fear and anxiety and what if this happens again? And then your mind just plays all these sort of games and tricks on you, I guess, to protect you from future trauma and grief. So I avoided mirrors for a really long time because I just didn't want to acknowledge that I was pregnant. I remember at the 13-week anatomy scan, we were told everything looked good, but I burst into tears after and I said to Tom, I just wish it was Rory in there. I don't want another baby. I just want him. And then feeling awful for saying that, thinking, oh, well, maybe this baby's going to die because it thinks I, I don't love it and I don't want it. And, yeah, actively trying to avoid connecting with this baby so that if something bad happens, somehow maybe the grief will be less. But, of course, that's not how things work. And I think once I first started feeling movements with this little one, that's when I you know, I really felt like, okay, there's, there's a little person in here and I just love them and I want to protect them and I want, you know, their entrance into the world to be completely different to Rory's. So it's, it's definitely, I think, a kind of duality of feelings of being excited but wanting to keep a lid on the excitement, of being terrified, of being anxious, of longing for the fact that it's not going to be Rory and that I'm never going to be able to have him again. But then the hope of this pregnancy being a, ending in a different outcome. And so you're going to have a Caesar earlier on. 
this time. Yes. Yeah. yeah, 37 weeks. So when I saw my obstetrician for what would have been the six-week checkup, and it coincided with when we got the autopsy results and he essentially said then and there, for any future pregnancy, he would want to deliver me by cesarean at 37 weeks. And it just wasn't even a discussion. I wasn't, I didn't sort of say, what about, you know, can I have a VBAC? Or, you know, I just was like, yep, okay, no worries. Because <laughs> I, I trust him completely. And my husband was was sort of nodding and I just thought, okay, well, I've got my obstetrician who I have a really wonderful relationship with and who has been practising for 30 years and my husband, who's also a, a doctor, and I I just felt I've got good people helping me to make good decisions. And there's sadness that I'll never get to have a vaginal birth and a sense of, well, am I a failure or am I less of a mum because I'm having a cesarean? And, you know, when I say to people I'm having a cesarean, I think they think I'm doing that because, you know, I'm... I, I'm scared of having a vaginal birth or yeah. something or I'm, you know, that it's awful expression too posh to push. And so I, I, I sort of feel this sense of judgment from people and that's hard to reconcile. But at the end of the day, and it was what I said in my pregnancy with Rory was I want a living child, not a childbirth experience. Yeah. And if I have to have more intense medical intervention to get that, then that's what I'll do. I know it's hard because, you know, you do worry about what other people think and judgment, but you also go, you know what, screw you, you don't know my backstory. Yeah, <laughs> that's know. right. Like this is literally not by choice. And you almost, you just have to kind of box up that judgment from other people and focus on you really and what's going to be best at, at the end of this pregnancy. So yeah, um, and I mean, easier said than done, I know. <laughs> yeah, and, and anyone that knows, you know, about, Rory, um, they they don't for one second have any judgment about us having a cesarean. It's just more, you know, I, I was speaking to an instructor the other day and he said, oh, this matter's been listed on the 25th of January. And I, I just said, oh, I'm not going to be available because I'm actually having a cesarean that day. And he was meaning well, but, you know, he said, oh, congratulations. He said, although I don't know if, a, you know, cesarean's any easier than a, a, a natural birth. And I just had to bite my tongue because he's an instructor. I didn't want to say, well, my son died and that's why yeah. I'm having a cesarean. Yeah. But it was one of those moments of feeling judged. And he wasn't judging me. I think, you know, he no. was just making a throwaway comment. And But then I started to kind of get in my head and start spiralling and thinking, you know, I'm such a failure and how come I can't have a vaginal birth like most other women? But as my husband often says, he says 100% of babies surveyed don't care how they enter the world. <laughs> so <laughs> as long as they're living and breathing and healthy, then, you know, that's that's really all that matters. Yeah, exactly right. And actually, one thing I wanted to ask, were you practising as a barrister when you had the stillbirth? And when did you go back to work and how did all of that play out? Did you find it was work was almost a distraction for you or was it actually really tough to go back to some sense of normality knowing the horrendous experience that you just had? Yeah, going back to work was really tough because I had Rory effectively a couple of days before my due date and so I had already put in place plans that I was finishing up work in the November and I was going to come back in the February on a part-time basis. And so 
I effectively kind of kept that plan in motion and came back in the February and realised about six weeks in that I just wasn't ready to be back at work. I had a few matters where I just made really silly little mistakes that was inexcusable for what my expertise is. And I guess that's probably me also just being a bit hard on myself, but equally I paid a lot of money to perform and to get results and I just wasn't able to focus and I was really distracted and things just took me so much longer. So I just decided that I needed to take a step back and and give myself a bit more time to get back to a place where I felt I was kind of mentally more resilient. And because I did have some pretty significant mental health challenges after I was diagnosed with PTSD and postnatal depression. And so there was just a period of trying to get my medication right to help that and connecting with people in the mental health space that could help support me. And I then started seeing a new counsellor and obviously building up rapport with her. And those things were all happening in the months of V to April. And then it was probably around May that I started feeling a bit more like my, I don't want to say like my old self, because I, I don't think I'm ever going to be like that, but a bit more like me. And I, I think people underestimate that even although Rory died, I still went through a postpartum process. So I still had hormones raging through my body. I still bled for weeks after he was born. I ended up having to have a DNC because I started hemorrhaging a couple of weeks after he was born. I just had all those other hormonal things that people don't talk about. Like I would wake up dripping in sweat. Apparently night sweats are really common when you're in the postpartum period. So your body goes through such a huge physical change. And even although he died, my body for all intents and purposes was still going through the same process that a a mum would with a living child. That's right, because you still gave birth effectively. And that would, you know, that would really play on you as well in terms of that anger and how unfair I still have to go through all of this. Every time I go to the toilet, I still see blood and I don't have my little baby. And that, that would have been absolutely horrendous and a massive toll on your mental health, no doubt. Yeah, just yeah. all those things just felt like a slap in the face. It yeah. was sort of like, okay, well, my son died. Isn't that punishment enough? Now, yeah. you know, my hair's falling out and I'm dripping in sweat at night and my boobs are still gigantic. I can't fit into any of my pre-pregnancy bras and, and just all those things. It's something that just makes you not feel like yourself and it, that's really hard. So it did take a while until I felt I could return to work. And then when I did return to work, I just had very clear, I guess, rules or boundaries about what it was that I was prepared to do in terms of work. So I I wasn't going to accept last minute briefs if it meant I was going to have to be up till midnight or pull an all-nighter because sleep was just so important to me because I essentially did become an insomniac. And when you don't sleep, that causes a whole heap of other issues. And so getting a very healthy and structured sleep routine was really important to me and highly recommended by all of the sort of medical professionals that I was seeing. Also just not putting myself under too much pressure. So I kind of started building up to going back to work in the June and just did bits and pieces. And then I think probably by about maybe August or September, I was back at sort of a a pretty busy capacity. And by that stage, 
I I did enjoy being back at work and I really loved the intellectual stimulation. Whereas in those early months, I just remember going back to work and thinking, I don't care about these clients. Like they're fighting over money. Don't they know my son died? Yeah, exactly. And like get some, have, get some perspective. Yeah. You know? yeah this yeah. whole existential crisis of yeah. what is my career even about? You know, like, well, I, am I really doing anything meaningful? And started having these sort of lofty ideas of, I want to be like on the board of the Stillbirth Foundation and I just want to work in that space and yeah. feeling like, yeah, everything else I did didn't matter. So there was also, I guess, that kind of thing of, is this what I want? Yeah, exactly. Well, I've on you for actually taking a step back and realising that you just needed to give yourself time, space and compassion, really, rather than go back into work because you felt you had to. I was fortunate you know being a barrister we're we're self-employed so Mm -hmm. I I was able to have quite a bit of flexibility and autonomy over those choices I'm I'm very grateful I'm not a PAYG employee having gone through this experience because yeah I think having to effectively ask someone permission if I can have more time off I would have found that really hard I probably wouldn't have done it because I just I I hate asking for help it's just you know, something that I struggle with. I mean, a lot of women struggle with. So I am very aware of the fact that I I feel quite privileged that I was in the position that I was in. But equally, I guess, nice to have some positives given the trauma that had happened. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for being very brave and courageous and sharing your story with me and the listeners of the podcast. I think not only is it going to allow women who have experienced a similar loss to you or another type of loss know that their feelings are validated as well by listening to your experiences. All the best with the remainder of the pregnancy. Take care now. Thanks again. Bye.